Chapter 3 Classy People The eight year old boy left Ethiopia in search of a better education and a brighter future. It was 1963, a time of considerable change in the country where the boy had lived with his parents. Thousands of Western tourists were venturing there, hoping to enjoy Ethiopia's sunny weather and its ancient history. In the capital, Addis Ababa, New buildings designed by prominent European architects were sprouting up as a gusher of foreign aid and a boom in the export of Ethiopian coffee lifted the economy. And the city was the home of the new Organization of African Unity, a confederation of dozens of African countries. At its inaugural summit that May, the 2,000 plus delegates, which included 31 heads of state, Pledged to devote themselves to decolonizing the rest of the continent. Ethiopia's autocratic emperor, Haile Selassie, tried to refashion himself as a beacon for independence and self determination. May this convention of union last 1,000 years, the 71 year old emperor declared at the summit before inviting the delegates to a sumptuous banquet. The optimistic mood didn't temper the reality on the ground. Selassie was a brutal, absolutist ruler. Most Ethiopians were impoverished peasants. Even the affluent couldn't avoid the sight of things like leprosy and widespread destitution. While the Western world had grown accustomed to viewing coronations and other events on live TV, very few people in Ethiopia could afford to buy a television set, and, even if they could, there were no broadcasts to actually watch. And so the eight year old, named Michael Spencer, decamped to England. His parents, diplomats in the British civil service, had enrolled him in a Catholic boarding school in the rolling green hills and farmland south of London. The young Spencer was a strong student and was later admitted to Oxford University, where he studied astrophysics. But his goal, ever since he'd been 15, was to work in finance. He was fascinated by the Rockefeller and Morgan dynasties in the United States. Most important, he craved money. His father, back in Addis Ababa, didn't discourage the obsession. Money can't make you happy, but it does allow you to be miserable in comfort, he counseled his son. After graduating from Oxford, the 21 year old Spencer, with a hippie haircut and beard, Landed his first job in the city of London in 1976 at stockbroker Simon and Coates. He was fired in 1979 after losing gobs of money on a bet that the price of gold would go down. Instead, the price had soared after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Spencer seemed to blame the mishap on his absorption of the industry's prevailing culture. I rather naively believed one could get rich quick, and the whole idea of working in the city was to get rich quick, he would tell an interviewer in 2005. Spencer soon bounced back and secured a new gig in London at the American bond trading firm Drexel Burnham Lambert. Once again, he was fired after three years, this time not only for making bad trades, but also for trying to conceal them. In many industries, That would have been the final straw. But London's financial arena in the 1980s was a wild, reckless place. 
The city was about to undergo the violent tremors of Margaret Thatcher's deregulatory revolution, and hungry young traders and brokers were in high demand. Spencer resurfaced at a smaller brokerage firm called Charles Fulton. By now, despite his money-losing ways, he was developing an expertise in a fast-growing corner of the markets called interest rate derivatives. When Charles Fulton converted into a publicly traded company in 1985, Spencer took his earnings, about $200,000, and with a few colleagues, decided to create a new brokerage firm that would specialize in matching up buyers and sellers of interest rate swaps and other derivatives. They launched Intercapital in May 1986. Its name would later be shortened to ICAP. One of the pieces of sage counsel that Brent Davies pounded into his impressionable mentee's head over and over again was the following, never trust a broker. Brokers, he explained to Tom Hayes, were like the hyenas of the investment banking world, wild, clownish figures who feasted on the carcasses left behind by stronger, more cunning predators, namely traders. These weren't run-of-the-mill stockbrokers, the types who handled many grandparents' portfolios of blue-chip stocks. These particular middlemen, known in the industry as inter-dealer brokers, solely interacted with people at big banks and other financial institutions. Say that a trader at RBS wanted to buy a bundle of interest rate derivatives. To avoid tipping his hand to rivals, the trader would tell one of his favorite brokers that he wanted the derivatives and was willing to pay a certain price, say $1,000 per contract. The broker would tell his colleagues. Then those brokers, generally keeping the identity of their client secret, would fan out to their trader contacts at other banks and see if there was anyone willing to sell that product at something resembling the price the RBS trader was willing to pay. If so, the match was made and the trade got done. For his efforts, the broker's firm was rewarded with a tiny percentage of the transaction's value as a commission. Because the trades regularly ran into the millions of dollars, and lots of them occurred every day, such commissions quickly stacked up. The brokers personally received a big chunk of their commissions. But the brokers also played another, less tangible role in the shadows of London's financial markets, as purveyors of gossip and other often questionable information. When a trader wanted to get a sense of where a market was heading, he might call a broker to get a feel for where rival traders were putting their money. The brokers, few of them university-educated, but most of them with street smarts, also were infamous for spoon-feeding traders bogus information that had no purpose other than tricking them into doing trades that weren't really worthwhile to anyone but the brokers themselves. Similarly, if a trader wanted to spread misinformation in the market, for example, nudging the price of a thinly traded instrument higher based on a hazy rumor about pent-up demand for that particular product, a broker could be an ideal conduit. One illustration of the industry's culture was that brokers used the word broking to mean tricking or misleading, as in, I was broking him to believe something that wasn't true. For a good trader, however, 
Brokers were indispensable as sources of trading opportunities and information. As a result, when Hayes gained responsibility for a small amount of trading, his colleagues started introducing him to brokers and warning him about the hazards they posed, especially to someone who was gullible and prone to social confusion. One of the first brokers Hayes met was Noel Cryan, an amateur boxer who worked at one of London's biggest brokerages, Tullet Prebon. The son of Irish immigrants, his dad was a construction worker, his mother a nurse, Cryan attended Catholic school where he struggled with disciplinary issues. He dropped out at age 17 and spent the next couple of years working odd construction jobs. One miserably cold winter morning, Cryan stood outside at a construction site and decided that perhaps it was time to start a career. Despite his lack of interest in school, he was good at math, and he found an apprenticeship at a local gambling company. He enjoyed the job and figured he could earn a better living putting his skills to work in finance. A broker he knew said he'd be a good fit in that industry, and so, at age 21, Cryan joined the profession in which he would spend the next quarter century. Cryan, with a bulbous nose and hangdog cheeks, he had a slight resemblance to Kevin Spacey, was married with two sons. An avid sports fan, he'd taken a liking to the New England Patriots, but his biggest passion was soccer. He supported a third-rate London club called Millwall, whose fans were renowned, even in England's bare-knuckled hooligan culture, for their pugilistic tendencies. Hayes regarded Cryan as bright and likable, especially because he, like Hayes, was loyal to a mediocre soccer team. In Hayes's linear mind, fidelity to a downtrodden squad was a sign of strong moral fiber, and therefore meant the person could be trusted under virtually all circumstances. The feeling wasn't mutual. Cryan, a bit of a party animal, thought Hayes was basically a loser, shy and antisocial, and seemed to suffer from some sort of obsessive-compulsive disorder. That Cryan's wife was a special needs teacher probably made him more attuned to this sort of thing than the average broker. When they went out for a drink, it was hard to get Hayes to talk about anything other than financial markets or soccer, and he still refused to make eye contact. Hanging out with him was exhausting. Like Hayes's teachers from a decade earlier, Cryan found that the young trader could be combustible. The slightest provocation, a real or perceived slight, for example, would set him off. Cryan quickly learned that there was no point trying to argue with Hayes about the wisdom of trades or the accuracy of data. When Hayes was in one of his moods, Cryan would let him rant and rave, turning down the volume on his phone so he didn't have to listen. He would wait out the storm and call him out on his bad behavior the next day after he'd calmed down. Hayes typically would apologize and promise to make it up to the broker. Despite his qualms about Hayes' personality, Cryan respected his chops as a trader, albeit a relatively green one. His ability to spot patterns was stunning. His grasp of tricky market phenomena was equally impressive. And for all his flaws, he seemed trustworthy. He was just very, very intense. Hayes also was introduced to a parade of brokers at a much smaller London firm, R.P. Martin. R.P. Martin was an insular, tight-knit outfit. 
Its CEO, David Kaplan, ran the place with close attention to details, large and small. He was universally known as Mustard, a nickname that stemmed from his early days as a broker. Back in the 1980s, senior colleagues had described his eager attitude as keen as mustard. Balding, with blue eyes and an impish smile, he often retired to the local pub with his workers to engage in foul-mouthed banter and name-calling. Such was the culture Mustard instilled at his firm. One of the first people Hayes met at R.P. Martin was Lee Aaron. His nickname was Village, shorthand for Village Idiot. Aaron, who had started as a broker in 1998, relished his goofball reputation, which appealed to some traders who were more interested in having a relationship with a chatty, fun-loving guy than with a financially literate broker. Hayes was not one of those traders. He had little time or patience for those he deemed less intelligent than himself, a cohort that encompassed most of the world's population. Over and over, Hayes demanded that R.P. Martin, if it valued its relationship with RBS's derivatives traders, find him a new broker. After burning through his third or fourth unsatisfactory R.P. Martin broker, Hayes told the company that he wanted someone young, someone whom he could mold. Behind closed doors, the R.P. Martin brokers fumed. One dubbed Hayes the most rude person he had ever had the misfortune to meet. Nobody, it was agreed, wanted to work with this guy. Then along came Terry Farr. Farr was about eight years older than Hayes. His mother worked for the government. His father sold shrubs and plants at a local market. Farr had dropped out of school at age 15. He had always wanted to work with dogs. He figured maybe he could become a canine handler in the military. That turned out to be impractical, so instead he followed his sister into banking. His first job, two days after he turned 16, was as an entry-level clerk at Lloyd's Bank. Four years later, not long after getting laid off, he had a son with his teenage crush, Claire, a short, pretty redhead. They eventually married and settled in a house on the English coast. Far, blonde and with a ruddy, boyish face, cherished the freedom of being able to race his motorcycle, he had a particular fondness for Ducati bikes, along the hilly, windy countryside roads. Once, a wasp stung him on his chin while he was on his motorcycle. His neck and chin swelled up so much that the normally pudgy Far looked like he had suddenly become morbidly obese. He was also prone to crashes. After a long stretch of unemployment, in which he worked with his father at their market stall, Farr became a broker. He got the job through one of Claire's ex-boyfriends, whose father was the chairman of a brokerage firm. Farr's inability to do math beyond simple addition and subtraction didn't prove problematic. Five years later, in 1999, Mustard personally recruited him over beers at a London pub nearly doubling Farr's salary to 60,000 pounds. Farr came to love Kaplan and the casual culture he presided over. In the summer, Farr showed up to work wearing Bermuda shorts and flip-flops, fine by mustard. By the time Hayes appeared on his radar, Farr was a veteran, but he had never mastered the technical side of things. 
His boss regarded him as hard-working, but not the sharpest person in the box. More than a decade later, Farr would remain confused about the defining characteristics of the instruments, such as interest rate swaps, that he was helping clients trade. Farr's expertise was as a social creature. Beer in one hand, cigarette in the other, he was a focal point in the pub, charismatic and friendly, able to make strangers feel at ease with a casual wink and a knowing smile. When Farr heard that the notoriously prickly Hayes was looking for someone malleable to be his broker, he raised his hand. Farr knew he could easily play the part of the clueless newbie. He was good at handling difficult people, and he sensed an opportunity to get in at the ground floor with a promising young trader. I can put up with being shouted at a bit, Farr thought to himself. The relationship got off to a turbulent start. Hayes wasn't interested in the broker's excuses about not understanding basic financial concepts. He regularly screamed at Farr, who would turn the other cheek, and the abuse would gradually subside. Once, however, Farr, embarrassed that his colleagues had overheard him getting chewed out by the young trader, felt compelled to stand up for himself. To the broker's surprise, Hayes immediately backed down and apologized. After that, he was easier to deal with. The two men spoke daily, and before long, they were on the phone a dozen or more times each day. Farr worked overtime, arriving at 5 a.m. and staying till 6 p.m. to keep Hayes happy with a steady stream of chatter about what his rival traders were up to. Gradually, to reward Farr for his patience and scraps of information, Hayes routed an increasing number of lucrative transactions through Farr. One final broker rounded out Hayes' squad, ICAP's Daryl Reed. Slim and well-dressed, with close-cropped dark hair and dark, scowling eyebrows so pronounced that they seemed to cast shadows over his deep-set eyes, Reed wasn't like most other brokers. The son of a carpenter, he had graduated from Liverpool University in 1986 with a degree in geography and zoology the first member of his family to earn a college diploma and an achievement uncommon among his professional peers. A passionate rugby player and fan, he once turned down a job in Zurich because of Switzerland's lack of a rugby culture. One of his teammates on his local rugby squad was an ICAP broker, and he suggested that Reed apply for a job there. Reed declined. But years later, stuck in a dead-end job as a clerk at a small bank, he ran into his rugby friend again. This time, Reed took him up on the idea. After getting the job, Reed continued to tell friends that he'd like one day to become a geography teacher. But he and his wife, Joanna, the two had known each other since college and had two young sons, soon grew accustomed to his six-figure income. In an industry where creative nicknames were prized above almost all else, Reed's original moniker was Beryl, a nod to the British actress Beryl Reed, who had spent a career depicting eccentric characters. That proved too harmless to be much fun. Reed's long, pointy nose offered greater inspiration. Among his subsequent nicknames were Noggin, Nogs, Nez, and Big Nose. Reed liked Hayes. He could tell the guy was razor sharp, 
but it was also clear that he was in way over his head. He was shy and socially maladroit. The first three months of their relationship, Hayes didn't want to meet in person, and Reed felt a bit bad for him. RBS had thrown him into a market-making job where his success would hinge in large part on his ability to come up with precise prices so that he would know at exactly what levels to buy and sell the derivatives he was trafficking in. It didn't take the technically-oriented Reed long to notice that some of the prices Hayes was relying on were at best imprecise. Other brokers pounced at the chance to exploit the youngster's errors. Reed offered him some pointers instead. Like Hayes, finance and markets intuitively made sense to Reed. He had a sponge-like memory, especially for numbers and data. He was the rare broker who could come up with sophisticated trading strategies rather than simply executing them. Hayes, therefore, respected him. Reed, 15 years Hayes's senior, also appealed to the young trader as a father figure. He encouraged that sentiment by coaching Hayes on the markets and trying to help the emotionally volatile young man remain on something resembling an even keel. From its roots as a four-man shop, ICAP had quickly become a powerful force. It benefited from impeccable timing, coinciding with London's growth as a crucial trading and broking hub. Michael Spencer, as CEO, had gobbled up smaller competitors and steered the firm into new markets, although interest rate derivatives remained one of the company's core focal points and profit sources. He had recruited similarly ambitious brokers from other London firms, men like David Casterton, who would come to form his inner circle. Before long, ICAP had a hand in a substantial fraction of all interest rate derivatives transactions and employed nearly 3,000 people in dozens of countries. Dressed as a city dandy in red suspenders, gold cufflinks, and colorful Hermes ties, Spencer had spawned the world's biggest inter-dealer brokerage. But even as his thriving company became part of the British establishment, the CEO prevailed over a retrograde culture. For years, he had refused to hire women. It was a private club, he would explain years later. His paternalistic concern, apparently, was whether women would put up with all the scatological language. Spencer had a hot, unpredictable temper, and colleagues noted how his large brown eyes sometimes would go from warm and welcoming to narrow and cold, his face twisting into a grimace when things didn't go his way. A framed picture of the Austin Powers villain Dr. Evil graced his office wall. Spencer's company was rich, and so was he. He decorated ICAP's headquarters with pieces by his favorite modern artists, including Lucian Freud. He loved wine and big parties, and ICAP soon boasted a world-class seller. Spencer once staggered into work with such a hangover that, after he passed out on an office sofa, his employees scrawled a message on his forehead with a felt-tip pen. By the mid-2000s, Spencer was a billionaire. He bought a ranch in Kenya, replete with black rhinos, elephants, lions, and leopards. Secure in his station, he adopted a more casual wardrobe, eschewing neckties 
and leaving his designer dress shirt sufficiently unbuttoned to expose an ample portion of his chest. He waded into politics, seeking to use his money to advance a tax-cutting, deregulatory agenda. He donated millions of pounds to the opposition Conservative Party and befriended its young leader, David Cameron. None of that changed the fact that the company Spencer had built was at the center of the wildest galaxy in an out-of-control financial universe. At the heart of the brokerage industry were a series of simple equations. The first was that for every trade a broker arranged, his firm pocketed a commission, generally ranging from a few hundred dollars to several thousand, depending on the size of the trade. Of that, the broker personally stood to pocket up to 30% in the form of his quarterly bonus payment. As a result, the brokers were perfectly positioned to benefit from the banking industry's evolution from a four-client business into a self-serving profit generator, characterized by frenzied short-term trading. The key to becoming a successful broker was cultivating cozy relationships with big traders. How did brokers manage that? By doing whatever it took, with virtually no exceptions, to please important clients. The resulting madness was rooted in another simple equation. For every $100 that a trader generated for a broker in commissions, the broker recycled $5 or $10 of that back to the trader in the form of entertainment. It was meant to cement the broker's relationship with his client and, more important, to create a direct causal connection between the amount of business a trader transacted through his broker and the amount of all-expenses-paid fun that the trader enjoyed. If that sounds like a kickback, well, that's basically what it was. In an earlier era, this might have meant taking clients out to drinks or expensive meals. But as investment banking businesses grew, and trading volume soared, and competition among brokers intensified, the practices metastasized. A prolific trader could rack up $1 million a year and sometimes two or three times that, in commissions for his favored broker. Try as the brokers might, and they would try hard, it wasn't easy to burn $100,000 on a single trader's stakes and cocktails. And so practices evolved. Dinners at Michelin-starred restaurants and $1,000 bottles of champagne at clubs were just the tip of the iceberg. All expenses paid jaunts to the Mediterranean resort destinations of Saint-Tropez and Monaco became the norm. So were boozy ski trips to the Alps. The alpine resort town of Chamonix became something resembling an off-site campus for ICAP and Tullet. Private jets and helicopters ferried traders to the MTV European Music Awards. Some brokers picked up $10,000 golf club membership fees for their favored traders. One dinner hosted by the brokerage firm BCG Partners at the trendy London NYC Hotel in Midtown Manhattan became celebrated among brokers for the $27,500 bill that they ran up on booze alone as they plied their clients. Legend had it that over the course of the evening, the brokers and their guests managed to exhaust the hotel's entire supply of champagne before moving on to bottles of 1970s vintage red wine. 
there were wild weekend trips to Las Vegas, with all, from felt tables to G-strings, that implied. When brokers got really desperate to show their prized clients some love, they would simply pick up the trader's hotel or restaurant tabs, even if the brokers themselves weren't there. But leaving your credit card number on file at a restaurant or hotel was easy. One night at a club in London, an ICAP derivatives broker asked a colleague to please shut the door to the bathroom because the trader he had brought as a guest was getting out of control as he snorted line after line of cocaine. Where did the drugs come from? The broker, of course. Another ICAP broker had a standing arrangement with a lucrative trader to hire a prostitute for him a few times a month. The next day, there would be a line of trades for me, that broker recounted. Of course, the brokers officially weren't supposed to be spending company money on go-go bars, much less prostitutes or cocaine. But the industry's efforts to police the practices were half-hearted at best. Some brokerage firms' compliance departments maintained banned lists of strip clubs and other establishments that were supposed to be off-limits. So brokers would pay cash out of their own pockets, then submit inflated expenses for car services and taxis. If there was an award for the most over-the-top entertainment, it might have gone to the brokers at Tradition Financial Services, some of whom became regular customers of a service called Lady Marmalade Adult Parties, housed in a private four-bedroom apartment near London's Paddington Station. When the brokers and their clients showed up, they were greeted by scantily clad women and an erotic love swing. It got more libidinous from there. Lady Marmalade's website promised customers an orgasmic time. For really high-end clients, the tradition brokers took things a few steps further via a luxury villa they rented in the Moroccan desert. During the day, they lounged poolside. At night, they went out to clubs in Marrakesh. The brokers and their middle-aged guests often returned to the villa with prostitutes in tow. One guest referred to the occasional Marrakesh jaunts as his week of joy in the NSL zone. That stood for no sperm left. Once, laughing so hard that they nearly cried, the brokers offered to pay a Moroccan prostitute the equivalent of $2 to be defecated upon. Yup, one of those brokers reflected, we are classy people. It was a good time to be a young trader at RBS. The bank's CEO, Goodwin, was determined to transform RBS from a provincial Scottish bank into a global powerhouse, part of a trend at the time of once sleepy banks chasing riches through breakneck international expansion. Between 2001 and 2008, the Edinburgh-based institution would see its assets grow to about £2.4 trillion, compared to £369 billion when Goodwin had become CEO. Much of that growth came from outbidding rival banks to buy weaker competitors. Goodwin proudly described his company as a supreme predator. He would eventually be knighted for his services to the British banking industry. Footnote. The honor would be stripped away years later after the financial crisis. End footnote. In the early 2000s, an essential element of Goodwin's expansion strategy 
was building an army of traders and salesmen to establish RBS as a vital, everyday presence in global markets, helping hedge funds, pensions, insurance companies, and other clients buy and sell a wide variety of securities, currencies, and other assets. The plan worked. By 2003, Hayes and the rest of his team of interest rate derivatives traders were hitting their strides. They had amassed gargantuan positions. RBS's books that year were jammed with 5.3 trillion pounds of interest rate derivatives, compared to 3.7 trillion pounds two years earlier. Worldwide, there were more than 100 traders in the squad in London, Tokyo, New York, Singapore, and elsewhere, and as the profits poured in, RBS's management pulled out the stops to impress them. The company paid for weekend trips for the team to gather in sunny destinations like Rome and Barcelona. They put the traders up in five-star hotels. In Monaco, they were flown to their hotel by helicopter. Senior bank managers came along too, lavishing the traders with praise and alcohol. One chilly evening in December 2003, RBS rented out a portion of Finsbury Square, a large grass and gravel gathering place nestled among the skyscrapers of central London. A decade later, the square would be home to London's iteration of the Occupy movement, whose camped-out protesters spent months denouncing banking's excesses. This night, RBS was throwing a big Christmas bash for its traders. With the winter sun setting in mid-afternoon, dozens of traders had ducked out of work early to get a head start on the revelry. The bank erected a large, white marquee tent stocked with free food and booze. By evening, the square was overrun with hundreds of inebriated bankers and traders. Hayes was among those still crowded into the tent. He was wearing his new, casual get-up of sneakers and a ratty sweater. As the party raged around him, the 24-year-old sat in a corner by himself. He found loud music disorienting. Instead of socializing, he was immersed in a novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, a disturbing psychological thriller about a damaged, detached mother trying to come to terms with her son's unspeakable crime. Hayes couldn't put the book down. As 2004 got underway, Hayes was beginning to look like the full package as a traitor. His math and computer savvy allowed him to craft sophisticated pricing models that gave him an edge over rivals, helping him eke out at least small profits on most of his trades as a market maker. He possessed an intuitive grasp of markets and finance, which helped him, more often than not, position his portfolio to take advantage of future changes in the price of the assets he was trading. And, a fringe benefit of not having much of a social life, he was an exceptionally hard worker who enjoyed pouring through dense statistical databases and research reports, hunting for clues about the future direction of markets. Many traders had at least one of those skill sets. Some had two. Few had all three. Hayes's success bred confidence, which in turn encouraged him to take greater risks, which ultimately, notwithstanding the occasional money-losing trade, produced even more profits. Rival banks were starting to get wind of RBS's hot young thing. 
One such competitor was the Royal Bank of Canada. Its name, like RBS's, derived from its roots as a royally chartered bank. A manager there named Andy Scott had heard about Hayes through a broker. Scott put out feelers to see if Hayes would be interested in joining the Canadian bank's London office. Hayes told his bosses at RBS about the approach, and they responded by kicking Hayes's pay into the six figures to £105,000. He said no to the Canadians. Ainsworth had by then become a saleswoman specializing in derivatives. She and Hayes lived together in a rented house in London's Limehouse neighborhood, an up-and-coming area on the north bank of the River Thames. The district's old warehouses and tenements, which for centuries swarmed with sailors and dock workers, had been converted into single-family homes, apartment buildings, and art galleries. A recently introduced elevated light rail line and proximity to the gleaming Canary Wharf Financial District meant Limehouse was increasingly filled with the Mercedes and fancy sports cars belonging to the rising banking caste. The couple squabbled a lot. Among the issues, Ainsworth didn't think Hayes went on enough vacations. She wanted them to spend some of their hard-earned money on weekend getaways, but Hayes didn't like the distraction from his job. Plus, he told her, the ratio of travel time to leisure time would be suboptimal, and the unit cost of a short vacation would be much higher than a longer break where the costs of airfare could be amortized over a greater number of days, and... Yet he had no misgivings about attending every home and away Queen's Park Rangers game, which under a similar cost-benefit analysis would suggest the best course of action was to make sure the TV remote was working. But Hayes saw things only from where he stood. He had little ability to empathize. He knew what he felt, and everything else was erratic and unreliable. Ainsworth found Hayes's brand of logic to be exhausting and hypocritical. On a couple of occasions, she stormed out, saying she was dumping Hayes, only to return hours later. One night, Hayes went home after work and decided he would cook dinner for them. Ainsworth, stuck at work on a conference call, was running late. When she finally got home, dinner was nearly ready but Ainsworth was wiped out and declared that she wanted to decompress in a bath. Give me ten minutes, she said. After a while, Hayes went upstairs to the bathroom to see what was taking so long. Ainsworth was still soaking in the tub. Hayes was hungry. He'd prepared a shepherd's pie, a casserole-style combination of ground beef, mashed potatoes, and peas, and he wanted to eat it before it got cold. Ainsworth asked for a few more minutes. Ten minutes passed. Hayes marched back upstairs and dumped the pie into the water. Ainsworth, stunned, sat in the bath, peas bobbing around her. At work the next day, Davies asked Hayes how his night had been. Hayes took the casual question literally, and without reserve or the slightest sense of faux pas, told Davies what had happened. Within days, the pie-in-the-bath story had bounced all over the city's trading and brokerage floors. It would continue to circulate for more than a decade. In 2004, Bank of America expressed interest in hiring Hayes. Scott tried again, too. The Royal Bank of Canada offered him a modest raise, 
and, more important, the fascinating challenge of overhauling its antiquated trading systems so that they could handle the type of derivatives that Hayes was starting to develop a specialty in. This wasn't the province of an IT department. Whoever designed the systems needed an intimate knowledge of how derivatives were structured and how financial markets worked. Scott argued that this was Hayes' chance to make a real name for himself. He also told Hayes that the Canadian company was a kinder, gentler bank, where his career will be nurtured and looked after. Indeed, Hayes had started feeling distinctly unloved at RBS. That summer, a batch of his trades had gone wrong. He had been up about 600,000 pounds for the year. Suddenly, he was down 100,000 pounds. The 700,000 pound swing was a pittance for a bank of RBS's size, but it meant that managers needed to be informed. That turned out to be a problem. Hayes had started trading a new type of instrument without getting the proper authorization inside the bank. It hadn't seemed like a big deal, but now that he had lost money, that decision was going to get someone in trouble. Hayes's boss didn't intend for that person to be him. He instructed Hayes to write an email to a manager a couple of rungs higher, acknowledging that he had been trading when he wasn't supposed to. Within a few months, Hayes was told to fall on his sword and hand in his resignation. With an offer from the Royal Bank of Canada in his pocket, Hayes followed orders. The voluntary resignation didn't leave any blemish on his records and was undetectable for future employers. Indeed, when the Canadian bank asked the investigative firm Kroll to perform a standard background check on Hayes before his contract was signed, RBS informed Kroll that we have no reason to doubt the individual's honesty and integrity. Hayes joined the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC, in November 2004, after a month of mandatory downtime that he used to score brownie points with Ainsworth, taking her on a vacation to the sunshine and shopping destination of Dubai. For his first year, RBC had agreed to pay him £80,000, plus a guaranteed £40,000 bonus, a total of about $216,000. The bank didn't have formal training programs in place. In fact, Hayes, despite being the junior man, was the one expected to provide training to his new colleagues about how to trade derivatives. Aside from being in a new part of the city, RBC occupied a squat building alongside a busy London thoroughfare, a mile or so from Hayes' previous office. The work environment was more or less the same. Row after row of desks, personal space only demarcated by computer monitors and phone lines. Hayes got to work digging into the bank's interest rate and currency's trading systems. Once again, he had to figure out how to price the different derivatives. He wrote the models and consulted with an American software company, SunGuard, to develop constantly updating risk management systems. Pleased with the outcome, Hayes's managers recommended he be made a full member of staff after his six-month probation ended in May 2005. By early 2006, Hayes was already elevating RBC's stature among competing institutions. Using some of the same panache for gambling that he'd showcased when gaming pub slot machines, 
and his classmates' need for short-term lunchtime loans. He studied the odds closely, compiling huge caches of historical market data to identify patterns and to isolate variables that could affect the odds, even at the margins. He devoured financial figures and reports, and then he bet big. Trying to win his burgeoning trading business, ICAP brokers wooed him with a ski weekend in Chamonix, but it was too boozy for Hayes' taste. When the brokerage invited him and a couple dozen other leading interest rate traders to a golf tournament, he said no. Even for an elite trader, luck plays a big role in determining success. Something with a 90% probability of happening will go the other way one out of every 10 times. And in those cases, just because the trade went wrong, it doesn't mean it was a bad idea. Hayes, despite his mastery of statistics, didn't seem to grasp that. A bad week of trading would put him in a surly, dark mood. Far tended not to be very helpful. It's monopoly money. Don't worry about it, he counseled on one occasion. Reed was better. He had a way of reassuring a struggling Hayes, who drew comfort because he knew that Reed also was a market expert. He could feel his pain. Keep positive, mate, Reed commiserated. Your luck will turn. Reed was right. That spring, the Bank of Japan had raised interest rates to 0.25%, abandoning its long-standing zero-interest-rate policy. Virtually overnight, trading products linked to Japanese interest rates went from an obscure backwater to a major moneymaker. Gambling on future volatility no longer looked like a fool's errand. Hayes found himself at the center of that small, exciting world. He had dutifully learned everything there was to learn about the dull Japanese market. That made him a rare commodity at an aggressive Western investment bank. His only competitors were traders at stodgy Japanese banks who lacked the carnivorous instincts of a London-trained trader. By early summer, he was making millions of dollars for RBC. Other banks hustled to bulk up their teams in the area. Pretty quickly, rivals started knocking on Hayes' door. J.P. Morgan considered hiring him before being turned off by Hayes' bizarre behavior in particular his tendency to blab to anyone who would listen, including his competitors, about what positions he was holding. UBS also had its eyes on Hayes. In Tokyo, an Australian named Mike Pieri was looking to deepen his team's expertise. He also was desperate to do something drastic about the bank's dilapidated derivatives pricing models, which, thanks to the market turbulence, were frequently getting overwhelmed and crashing. A headhunter working for UBS came upon Hayes. The bank's pitch, in addition to added money and a loftier title, was that it would be good for Hayes' career to work in Tokyo. Hayes, intrigued, was introduced to a UBS executive in London and then to Pieri. Pieri was impressed. Hayes seemed sharp and to be brimming with good trading ideas. UBS was practically salivating in anticipation of landing its former intern. The Bank of Japan's rate hike meant the derivatives market has come alive again.
Executives wrote in an internal form to get authorization to make Hayes an offer. We need someone to focus on the opportunities that have been created due to the lack of experience of other traders in the market. Hayes interviewed with a half dozen UBS executives before receiving an offer of $138,000 per year of salary, plus a guaranteed first year bonus of nearly $500,000 and free housing in Tokyo. Footnote Bonuses historically made up the vast majority of traders and investment bankers' total compensation. End footnote. UBS executives told him he could expect his salary and bonus to balloon higher if he produced as expected. Hayes's boss, Andy Scott, happened to go on vacation as the flirtations intensified. When he returned, Hayes told him that he was thinking of jumping to UBS. And Scott scrambled to retain his young prodigy. RBC offered more money. But Hayes wasn't swayed. Moving to Tokyo seemed like an adventure. And, more important, UBS enjoyed much greater stature and career opportunities than a Canadian bank. On June 6th, Hayes told Scott that he had made his final decision. He was resigning. He walked Scott through his outstanding trades. What Scott saw floored him. The portfolio was much, much larger than he had realized. RBC at the time had few internal checks to prevent unsupervised traders from essentially going wild. It turned out that while Scott was on vacation, Hayes had gone on a bit of a binge. Since it was now clear that during that stretch, Hayes was already in talks with UBS. At least from Scott's perspective, the frenetic trading activity over those couple of weeks seemed designed to curry favor with brokers who were getting Hayes' name out in the job market. Not an unheard of tactic among highly competitive traders, but nonetheless unsavory. That day, RBC marched Hayes out of the building. RBC got to work untangling Hayes' trades. With him no longer around, it would be far riskier to hang on to his bets than to quickly exit the positions. The process took several days, and it was ugly, as rival banks took advantage of RBC's need to sell. The positions were so big that the losses piled up quickly. A few weeks later, adding insult to injury, RBC got the bills for about $500,000 from the brokers Hayes had used to execute his transactions over the past month. The total tab for cleaning up Hayes' mess reached about $7 million. RBC opened an internal review to figure out what exactly had gone wrong. The first discovery was that Hayes had provided confidential information to an outside party. After he agreed to join UBS, but before he actually left RBC, the Swiss bank's headhunter had requested data about his annual profits and losses, known as his P&L, which the headhunter assured him was routine. Hayes, without much thought, handed the data over. The proprietary information contained material that Royal Bank of Canada considers to be confidential and sensitive. The bank wrote in a report about the matter. Hayes' actions were in breach of his employment contract and RBC's code of conduct. The bigger problem, though, 
was what the bank found next. As RBC employees dug into Hayes' trading positions, they realized that the computer models he'd built to price derivatives, and that his managers had praised as best in class, weren't working as well as advertised. In fact, they were spitting out false numbers, and they were false in a way that exaggerated the profitability of Hayes' trading. This action misled the firm regarding the value of the trades and strategies employed, the bank's report said. That and the huge payments to brokers raised questions regarding the integrity of Hayes. The saga came at an awful time for Scott. His marriage was on the rocks, and dealing with the Hayes mess doubled the stress. He ended up keeping his job but he would harbor resentments toward Hayes for most of the next decade. Despite his fury, though, he doubted that Hayes had actually done anything deliberately wrong. It looked to him to have been more likely a case of sloppiness and bad luck. Scott's managers weren't so sure. The bank reported its discoveries to its regulators at the Financial Services Authority. An RBC compliance official also phoned UBS to warn them about what it had uncovered. The alert quickly went up UBS's chain of command. Soon after arriving in Tokyo, Hayes received an email from an RBC employee back in London who wanted to arrange an exit interview. Hayes was confused. Why were they doing this now, a month after he left RBC? He nonetheless agreed to talk by phone a couple of nights later. As Hayes paced the small living room of his apartment in Tokyo's Roppongi neighborhood, the RBC officials told him that they had reviewed his trading patterns and Excel models and found a number of anomalies. They suspected that he had misled the bank. It was important that Hayes come clean now if he had done anything untoward, they said. Hayes appeared distracted and may not have been focusing clearly on the issues, an RBC official later reported to a counterpart at UBS. Hayes responded that he had no clue what the RBC man was talking about. Given his resignation from his first employer, the Royal Bank of Scotland, this threatened to be the second time he left a bank under a cloud. Angry and stressed, he called Scott to ask what was happening. Scott lied that he had no idea. Hayes then turned to Reed. They want to talk to me about the trades I did before I left, he told the broker, but I can't think of anything. He told Reed that RBC had decided to withhold its reference, an important step in the process of jumping from bank to bank, one that normally was the equivalent of a rubber stamp, until their review was complete. Not sure whether they are going to try to imply I behaved badly. I'm very nervous about it. The trades you did? That's complete rubbish, Reed said. You did absolutely nothing wrong. They are looking to cover their backs internally by implying I was up to something, I reckon, Hayes told Reed. I am nervous because I am in the dark. Ainsworth also grew anxious. Reed told them to chill. You are both worriers, which is not the best combination in times like this, he said. Once again, Reed's counsel turned out to be savvy. Having rung loud alarm bells, in a late August phone call, the Canadian bank's head of compliance in London adopted a softer tone with his UBS counterpart.
I also had the clear impression that RBC was, if not backtracking, at least playing down the severity of the seriousness of the issues. A UBS employee wrote in a file note about the matter. The RBC man confirmed that they would probably not have fired TH. One surmises that if UBS were to take significant action, this may place RBC in an uncomfortable position. In other words, if UBS were to fire Hayes, RBC could end up with egg on its face. While Hayes hired a lawyer to represent him before the FSA, that turned out to be unnecessary. The regulator, living up to its light-touch reputation, took no action, opting to let the matter be handled internally by the banks. In a follow-up phone call a few weeks later with UBS, the RBC compliance executive concluded that Hayes had not been openly underhand, but was in some respects perhaps young and naive. RBC would have given him a good bollocking and subjected him to enhanced supervision with the aim of making a better human being of him. The RBC executive added that they had no proof that this was down to deliberate dishonesty. It may have been that it was simply a poorly constructed model or even the result of inadvertent error. RBC recommended that UBS subject Hayes to three to six months of enhanced oversight. After weeks of discussion within its legal and compliance departments, UBS decided to let Hayes start trading. The only condition, for three months, he would be on probation and would have to get his supervisor to sign off on his books at the end of each day. Most new employees were automatically subjected to similar trial periods. This barely amounted to a slap on the wrist, not even the good bollocking that RBC had recommended as it sought to minimize the problem. Based on Hayes' experiences at the Royal Banks of both Scotland and Canada, this seemed to be the way banks dealt with mishaps. Rinse them away in the least disruptive manner possible. The lesson was hard not to internalize.